of the week of November 3rd, 2017. This is Think Outside the Beltway. Hello, everybody. On the first half of this week's show, we talk about the Mueller indictments with legal advisor Tabitha Chapman. She is a member of My Liberal Pals. Nice. And then in the second half, we discuss Tuesday's terrorist attack in New York. I am Stephen Cox, founder of the Facebook group My Liberal Pals and host of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. With me, as always, are Chad Levinson. He is the Stanley Kaplan Visiting Postdoctoral Fellow in Political Science and Leadership Studies at Williams College and our resident political scientist. Hello, Chad. Hello. And David Gershwin, Democratic strategist and former chief of staff to L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. He is our resident political strategist. And David, I will just start out by saying that I'm I'm sorry about your Dodgers, brother. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, too, but I've gotten over it. And all I have to say is wait till next year. Ah, yes. The cry of the baseball fan. I love it. Listen, they've got a They've got a damn good team. Wait till next year is valid. Yeah. And, and well, if anybody you. can say that, it's a Cubs fan. So I guess, you know. And, and Cubs fans just say wait till last year. <laughs> so, you know, when the three of us touched base earlier in the week on Monday during what was just a shitstorm of events, uh, we were all like, hey, whatever will we discuss on this week's show? Because, you know, we're hilarious. Uh, so let's just start uh, start with the top. Um, after a weekend of making the White House just sweat it out, Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller unsealed three indictments in his investigation into Trump's ties with Russia. Only one of the indictments was directly connected to Russia, but it's a doozy, and it goes by the name of Papadopoulos. I am so sick of typing that guy's name. I I did that a ton in this show prep, and now I just get to say it. So that's well, there that's was, better. There, there was like a there was like a race on Twitter to come up with the best name, to sh- the best way to shorten his name so that it actually fit in 140 characters. And the only way to do that is to create a Papadopoulos emoji. That's how you do it. Uh, the, you, you heard it here first. I don't know. Somebody out there in tech line, get on it. Uh, also on Monday, a federal judge in D.C. blocked most of Trump's transgender ban for people serving in the military. So that's good news there. And then with over 70 percent of Puerto Rico still without power, the governor there moved to cancel the evidently totally useless whitefish contract. You know, the tiny, completely unqualified company that got a sweetheart deal that was in no way connected to the fact that the Interior Secretary, Ryan Zinke, is from that same Montana town as a company. And hey, turns out the FBI would like to look into that. And so they are. And then on Thursday, the House released its opening salvo on tax reform a day late, I would add. I won't go into detail, but I will just go ahead and draw a big yellow highlighter over the part that lowers the corporate tax rate from 35% to 20% and just leave it at that. Uh, I would promise that we will be discussing it on next week's show, but given just how quickly shit is flying right now, I definitely won't make any guarantees. Uh, Another thing that happened on Thursday was that former DNC interim head Donna Brazil published an excerpt from her forthcoming book alleging proof positive that the DNC was co-opted by the Clinton campaign and according, accordingly rigged the nomination in Clinton's favor. And here for your delectation is an exemplary passage in which Brazil quotes herself as saying in a phone call to Bernie Sanders, Hello, Senator, I've completed my review of the DNC and I did find the cancer, but I will not kill the patient. If I have any personal take on this whole story, it's that Donna Brazil is a terrible fucking writer. Uh, but I figure both of you gentlemen have your own takes on this whole, I guess, dust-up scandal, whatever we want to call it. David, let's uh, start with you. What was your take on it? 
Well, my take on it, you know, Donna Brazil's got to sell books. I, I recognize that. Um, there's certainly a, a well uh, a well informed theory that she's uh, gunning to work for a Sanders 2020 campaign. But at the end of the day, the the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, had a joint committee, which is very common practice at the higher echelons of uh, the national campaigns, where once you max out your contributions to a federal candidate, and these are wealthy donors, of course, and I am not among those, but a wealthy donor will be able to give to this joint committee, knowing that the maximum amount goes directly towards Hillary Clinton's primary or general election right. campaign, and the remainder then goes to national, state, and local parties and local committees to, uh, you know, to help finance campaigns of additional candidates. So Hil there's no there there, in my opinion, and, and Hillary Clinton lived up to her end of the bargain. So of course she's going to have additional skin in the DNC game uh, for, you know, providing the resources and the backbone uh, as, as the DNC led up to the 2016 campaign. So it's really, it's not a, it's not a bombshell to me in any stretch of the imagination. Well, Chad, what was your take on it? It's largely the same. I mean, we so they have a joint a joint fundraising committee, and uh, Clinton in return got to appoint some members of the sort of financial staff of the DNC. But in the end, I haven't really sh seen anyone translate that into. All right, everybody, stick around. We will be right back. the outcome of the nominating process itself. So, like most Hillary Clinton scandals, there's a lot of shade. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, there's a lot of sort of convolution. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but you never get to the point where you say, "Here's what she did that was prejudicial of the process itself." Mm-hmm. That's life is Hillary, poor Hillary. I'm not, but but here's my theory. You know how Hillary got the nomination? She got the most votes. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, Bernie voters, please direct your emails to David Gershwin. It's a secret, but... Right. So, so the question is always like, how did she use that money to change the voting process in some way? Nobody's shown me that. Even Donna Brazil has said in response to the reactions to her excerpt, I never said that the nominating process was rigged. That's what Brazil, Brazil's characterization is that she didn't say what people have said she said. Right. Well, and another thing that people are taking issue with is the timing. But, you know, it's it's out there. So, OK. So as we know, the big story on Monday was the indictment of Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, and his former advisor, Rick Gates, as well as one of Trump's foreign policy advisors, a 30 year old dweeb named George Papadopoulos, who has pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. Uh, anyway, you guys know how we always have to issue a disclaimer at least once a show about how we're not lawyers? Well, we finally fixed that problem, at least for this segment, <laughs> because uh, we've invited on My Liberal Pals member Tabitha Chapman to discuss the indictments. Tabitha is a nonprofit legal advisor working with the United Nations on gender equality initiatives. Hello, Tabitha. Hello. So there is a lot to unpack here. Uh, I think we should just go ahead and start with Papadopoulos because his charges tie him most closely to Russia. So here's what we know. Papadopoulos made a number of attempts to establish a connection between the campaign and the Russian government, including a meeting with a Russian professor in Italy in March of 2016. Uh, that professor at that meeting told Papadopoulos that the Russian government had thousands of hacked Hillary Clinton emails. Papadopoulos was arrested back in July and he pleaded guilty to charges on October 6th. So let's start by talking about his charges. His main crime is lying to the FBI, right? Right. And in fact, it's his only one that he has pled to. OK. So the statement of offense that I mean, it's very brief. It's almost as easy, I think, as it's going 
to get. Mm. <laughs> uh, it only gets more complicated from here. But he's only been charged with and pled guilty to uh, false statements under 1002 uh, or 1, I believe. But um, it's only specifically to uh, the timing and the extent of the relationship and the interactions with those foreign nationals. So that just says that there's probably a lot more information in there that the FBI is aware of or no, or has come up on in this investigation that they're not going to include. There's no need to if he was guilty and, and they made a deal on just false statements. So, you know, I, I've heard and I've thought this through like they may have actually the FBI may have already had this information ahead of time when they interviewed him. And, you know, it's kind of a strategy if you know they're going to lie. Right. You can use that against them and flip them. So, so really, it's it's not a low level crime by any means. Clearly, it's a it's a felony. But um, I think the punishment for this is is generally like six months. And That's what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's probably plead to just do probation. So, as far as we know right now, this is it. This is all he'll be charged with. Now, in the plea deal, they could have uh, come up with you know, if you have or if you're found to have lied to us after the fact, then we may charge you with some other separate crime that they have information on already. So so right now, yeah, he, he's only um, pled to uh, giving false statements to the FBI. And, and he was the one, by the way, he was the one who had knowledge of the possession of stolen emails from the DNC, right? And as I've read, the statement of offense itself it gives very specific facts. So it gives you the days and times and who he talked to. And, you know, mm -hmm. so the content of what he lied about, yes, it does concern the emails, but I think it's more, it seems that this focused more on the fact that he lied to the FBI about when and to the extent that relationship was. So they don't really bring, uh, as far as I remember when I, when I read over it, I, I don't think they really, focus on the fact that it's tied to the DNC or that it's the emails. It's just that it concerns the campaign. So it's just really the content of why they were meeting is kind of why they brought it in. It gives the motive and the purpose. But uh, but really, it's just the fact that he lied. So, you know, they Got could it. bring up the DC, DNC stuff later. It could just not be brought up on him at all. So the, what we are hearing right now from a lot of analysts is that Papadopoulos's email threads within the White House are the things that at this point seem to point to collusion with the Russians. But a point of clarification about collusion itself is collusion itself a crime. It's always a political third rail, but is it technically illegal? So, well, yes. As we know it, collusion is a crime. Um, it is not called collusion in the federal statute. It's it's a it's it's kind of an umbrella theory or or area of law that's uh, you know a conspiracy to defraud the American government or the United States. And then that within that charge, you can include the actual crime that they committed, whatever it got may it. Be. Okay. And in this case, it was you know money laundering for Manafort. So collusion, as we call it, is just kind of the layman's word that we use. You know, it, we know what it means. It's a concept. But uh, under the federal statute, yeah, it, it falls under defraud in the U.S. government. So I, I've heard, you know, political analysts or, you know, we won't name names, but I've, I've heard people <laughs> say that it's not illegal. That it's just that's I that is a that's twisting, I think, the law a little bit. My understanding. I want to sort of bring everyone back to the year 2000 for a second. There was a moment in the the Gore Bush campaign 
the Gore Bush um, election, where Al Gore received by mail a copy of Bush's debate prep book. And he immediately handed it over to the FBI because receiving it, in receiving it, he had evidence that a crime had been committed, a crime of theft and election tampering. Now, I I sort of see exactly the same thing in this story where members of the campaign, and including Papadopoulos, were were in roughly a similar situation and behaved very differently, did not report it to the FBI. In fact, attempted to... Uh, arranged to receive that information. Right. And, and you know, I'll just tip my hat to Susan Hennessy of Lawfare Block, who um, sort of jogged my memory on mm-hmm. this. You know, is, am, I, am I missing something here? Or, or is, this, is, this another, is this another crime that we have evidence of? So the, the charges that they have right now, if, if we're going to, you know, the, the, the DNC, the Manafort charges, uh, it, it, it's just the basis. It's just the basic charges that they so how the grand jury works let me back up a little bit how the grand jury works is that the prosecutor selects which evidence to bring to the grand jury and then basically the grand jury just says yes or no to probable cause that doesn't mean that that's all the evidence that the prosecutor has or that the prosecutor is bringing which would not make sense they usually will bring their strongest case but if that evidence of some other crime is tied to maybe some other conspiracy say some other group or organization is the one that helped commit that crime and get in the emails that we don't know about right now, then that can be brought up separately. Or there's a lot of mechanisms that they have right now to get to the end product. And we're so early on that almost it could mean anything. Can I rephrase the question slightly in not reporting this, uh, the the evidence of, of theft to the FBI, could that be considered um, an ask a collusive act? So I think I I personally believe it could. Yes. I mean, because it falls under, you know, uh, it would be a conspiracy if there's two or more people there. The crime would be to defraud the United States. And this would be via whatever mechanism, the campaign laws or, you know, um, whatever way they want to do it, whatever crime they actually want to tie to it. Um, but I think it would be more appropriate to put it under maybe a different sections of laws. So it's, it's still, yeah, it, it, I think it could be put under that umbrella of collusion that that federal statute covers, but it also could, and probably is a little more relevant somewhere else. Um, what that is, I'm not so sure, but I, I think that that's something that, you know, it's a little more, um, I think the better route for that would, would be some sort of civil action coming from the DNC to get uh, more information to get the investigate, to get discovery basically going. Interesting. Uh, and, and what th- that's my take on it. Um, that's that's at least the case law that I am aware of. Like you said, turning it over ahead of time, um, you know, before any crimes have been committed, uh, you know, what do you do then? So clearly nothing's nothing's happened. Well, here, what do you do? You backtrack to that point when those emails are given over. Well, you have so many other things going on that really it's hard to prove some of those things that surround that whole email thing. But you can prove the contact with those foreign nationals. So you start there. So let's shift over and talk about Paul Manafort and all of this. Uh, As we said, he is facing 12 charges, including money laundering, a a million dollars in rugs. Seriously, it's like, how do you (laughs) you're almost like, well done, dude. Um, He (laughs) seems to not be sweating this uh, possibly because he's expecting a pardon at the end of all of it. If he gets that, is he completely off the hook 
Tabitha? What what happens after he if so, and, if if and when he's pardoned? Right, and you know, I, this is one of those. This is personally infuriating to me, um, and I think to everyone who has a brain. But <laughs> for this one, for for the the pardon issue, I mean, we've seen what Trump's done. We see we know the kind of person he is and what his kind of agenda is. So it's no it's no crazy feat to it's it's not a crazy thing to speculate that he will definitely pardon him. So just assuming he does. Um, I do not think that that's a smart idea, and I don't actually know that he will do that. I don't think that I think the political pressure is too much. But if he did, because he is who he is, then the indictments are there. I mean, they're not they're there. They're not going anywhere. Um, so should Trump fire, uh, say, Mueller or um, any of the other uh, anybody in the line of secession? then the case will will still be prosecuted by whoever is appointed to prosecute it. So it just depends it. on who's going to, you know, who's going to actually appoint that special prosecutor or that special counsel. Will a replacement actually be put into place if Mueller is removed? Say? Well, so these, at least at this level, this kind of investigation, it's so much of a group thing. It's a team investigation team that even if Mueller, Mueller is fired, that work can still be carried on by everybody else. It's just the figurehead. So Mueller's just the, the named prosecutor who comes up with the strategy and, you know, puts all the ducks in a row. But even if he's gone, say someone else comes in or there's there's no one in the interior, then, then that group that's working still has a process that's already in place because trial has already been set. So there will be people working on you know, working on that case until trial comes. If they have to delay it because there's no special counsel, then they'll delay it. But in other words, they'll fill the gaps. And that's my, at least, that's my uh, positive take on the system. The way that the special counsel, the regulations, uh, the federal regulations for like special counsel, they're pretty strict. So, I mean, and they're very, like, I think even, is it Rosenstein? Rosenstein? Um, he even said, you know, he has no intention of ever firing Mueller. Um, but if he did, it would be very difficult for Trump to do. Should it be the Saturday night massacre, a situation, it just goes down the line, goes down the line. Okay, so let's pretend that those charges never go through. The trial gets, you know, canceled. Okay, then yes, he can be charged in, um, and Manafort at least can be charged in uh, state courts. That's, that's really interesting. That angle interests me a lot, right? So if if Trump manages to get uh, Manafort off the hook by rearranging this, you know, the the personnel at the Department of Justice and the FBI, then he's never faced jeopardy in, in any court, and mm-hmm. the states can go ahead and prosecute them. What about what about the pardon option, though? So does does double jeopardy apply across the jurisdiction of federal to state uh, to state? prosecution this you know in my in my not a lawyer research i came across this phrase um you know dual sovereignty doctrine where one state can prosecute somebody for the same crime after another state has already done so because they're sort of equal separate jurisdictions does the same thing apply if something starts at the federal level and the accused gets pardoned has you know and and has that has that accused faced jeopardy in such a way that they cannot right. then be prosecuted at the state level? Right. And so the most basic way is, OK, let's let's go back just a little bit. Um, dual sovereignty, just idea in general, is that, yes, you can be prosecuted for the same crime in a federal court and in a state 
state court. And that does not attack, uh, double jeopardy is not uh, violated. And that's because, yes, of the dual sovereignty um, idea, which it's also the same thing for, say, like Indian tribes or other countries or, mm-hmm. um, mm. uh, you know, name anything. So, for instance, in Kansas, there's one jurisdiction where you can be charged with the same crime in three ways. And that's the tribal, the Kansas law, and the federal law. So you can be serving consecutive or uh, concurrent sentences for the same crime. And it's it's a hot topic and it's kind of changing. But yes, that will always be there. So even if the federal charge does not go through and he's not convicted, the state of New York is actually was already doing an investigation on Manafort. And I believe it was for filing false reports, but but very similar white collar crime um, stuff related to this. And so if his federal charges don't go through, he's not convicted, he doesn't go to trial, even if he is convicted and goes to trial, then New York can still charge him based on state law. So whatever their New York state laws that have been violated, they can charge him and then Trump can't pardon that. That's that's right. beyond his power. And if he's pardoned so- for the federal crime, that does not get him off the hook for the state crime, at least on the money laundering charge. Right. And double jeopardy doesn't, for at least this type of case, it doesn't attach until the jury is sworn in at trial. So even ah. if, uh, say, we've already gotten to the point where we've set trial, the jury doesn't get sworn in and they dismiss the case, they can just refile the case against him based on the same, you know, because we haven't, double jeopardy hasn't attached. So so really, it's so early that there's a lot that could happen in the meantime or in the, you know, in between that that could shift, you know, to bigger, bigger problems for him, basically. And Trump getting around one obstacle won't affect the other ones at all. <laughs> That is actually very encouraging. If there's a ray of light or, or sunshine <laughs> or hope in all of this, it's the fact that Manafort's probably fucked uh, no matter no matter what happens. That's that seems positive. So of all people, Spiro Agnew's lawyer uh, wrote a piece just in the last few days saying that that yeah. Manafort is <laughs> Manafort's in the clear because Trump's going to pardon him. And um, Tabitha, I'll just I'll say it right now. I trust you more than I trust Spiro Agnew's lawyer. <laughs> How about that? Put put that that on on your CV. Exactly. (laughs) All right, Tabitha, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate your your astute analysis. Yeah, thank you so much. Do you need a website? If you are an author, a musician, a small business person, or basically a person in life, I'm just going to answer this question for you. Yes, you need a website. Go over to thebestexamplesite.com where I have prepared a video showing you how to set up your very own website in six minutes for 12 bucks. Go check it out because you definitely do need a website. Also, how many times can I say the word website? And we are back. I am Stephen Cox. They are Chad Levinson and David Gershwin. And let's just button this segment by talking about the political ramifications of the Mueller indictments. Uh, specifically, I want to talk about what Trump might do. Now, he has a few moves that he can make. Uh, First, he could get Rosenstein or someone down the line of succession at the DOJ to fire Mueller and have his own Saturday Night Massacre. That's something we just discussed. Uh, He could pardon everyone uh, after they get convicted. That is also something we discussed. Uh, And he could, on yet another hand, also appoint another special counsel to investigate Hillary Clinton and the Uranium One Steel dossier DNC non-story. Uh, which is something that Steve Bannon and Roger Stone are apparently uh, strongly urging him to do. Let's start with the possibility of firing Mueller. David, what what is the political cost in your mind of doing something like that? Is that a political red line? Is that a political red line? 
Uh, the shorter answer is yes. That's that's simply a political red line that Donald Trump cannot cross unless he wants to go down impeachment road. And I'm not saying that lightly. I firmly believe that Trump, Trump's own advisors are telling him that that's simply a move that he could not survive politically. And even his would-be allies in the Republican Congress would probably desert him in the interest of the sanctity, of what, what sanctity is left of our governmental institutions. And to bring a little history, historical perspective uh, to this, um, on August 7th, 1974, then U.S. Senator Barry Goldwater, along with uh, the House Minority Leader, went to then-President Richard Nixon and told him he had lost the support of Republicans in Congress. Richard Nixon resigned the presidency effective at noon on August 9th. So I, I think there there is that X factor that will prevent Trump from being so rash as to fire Mueller because it would be a road down from down from which I, I don't even know which preposition I'm using. He would never recover. Don't dangle any of them. Don't dangle a preposition. Or your participles. Uh, you know, when Goldwater went to Nixon, the House was Democratic. And right now we're looking at a solidly Republican House. David, do you think that makes a difference? I do not. All right. So then let's talk about Trump getting the DOJ to appoint a special counsel to look into this Uranium One thing. Um and also, I should mention that uh, on Friday morning, Trump stopped just short of calling for a DOJ probe into the 2016 Democratic Convention, this on the heels of what we were talking about earlier in the show about the Donna Brazil book. Um, all of this is a pretty clear ploy to misdirect and create false equivalence between him and Hillary Clinton. This worked very well in the uh, election. Do we think it will work here, Chad? Um, I, I, I certainly hope not because it would be an immensely dangerous development for you you really can't it's impossible to overstate how just how bad that would be for american democracy for someone to follow through with his threat to punish his defeated political adversary agreed now last week we we you know i've sort of been kicking myself for not for not fully realizing this last week but this whole Uranium One story got new life when President Trump uh, ordered a gag order lifted on you know one of the one of the witnesses um, that had originally been interviewed um, in, in 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 the initial investigation of this. Interesting. Well, t- tell me more about that. I don't know about this. I, I don't know all the details, but it was just that you know Trump wanted this to be a story again, so he released a piece of evidence that people hadn't seen before, and it pretty much told the same story as everyone already knew. But since it's new, fresh evidence, just like the, you know, the the Anthony Weiner emails um, from, from Huma Abedin and, and Hillary Clinton's private server, um, it just reinvigorated the story long, you know, long enough for people to start paying attention. Sure. And we should have known that it was a smokescreen and that something was coming from the Mueller investigation, that that was the probable locus of 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 the story that he was trying to distract from, he being President Trump. You know what's scary to me is that we're seeing these two competing narratives develop here, one on what I think we can all agree is the side of truth and the other being crafted by Trump and outlets like Fox and Breitbart. It seems like these two narratives are fighting it out on the political stage right now, and it's an extremely dangerous path, isn't it? I mean, it is an extremely dangerous path. I'm not sure we're necessarily how much we're going down it. I mean, we're 
being dragged partly there. But mm. you know, the pulling on this particular story are over are are I don't know, I wouldn't say overwhelming, but they're solidly against the administration. You know, the Mueller investigation has majority support and and not and it's you know it's over fifty percent, but then the you know the opposition to it, stated opposition is is very, very low. Right. So it's not like fifty one forty nine, it's more like fifty one twenty five, something like that. Um and so you know, I don't think things are going to break his way. I mean, if if faced with this very dangerous development of, you know, a politician uh, jail in, you know, imprisoning uh, his defeated adversary, I, I think enough of those comfortable suburban Republicans that, um, you know, went along with the status, you know, voting for their candidate just because that's what they always do. I think they're gonna they're gonna start waking up, and politicians in the party are gonna start waking up as well because I don't think anyone wants to be a senator of a burnt down Senate. Yeah, you know, it's it's increasingly difficult to know what anybody is going to do in this political environment. Like, for example, Jeff Sessions, Attorney General, what does he do? In all of this, I mean, what, what do you think? I think he's a despicable human being with a with a you know, maybe a 17th century view of civil rights, mm. um, of civil rights law. But I do think that he values the institution of the Department of Justice, and that um, the president is is and he knows he knows full well the president is not empowered to order an investigation. He can push for an investigation. He can argue for an investigation. He could promote an investigation, but it's the attorney general's decision. And the president can fire the attorney general for any reason, and it will have the force of law. And so Jeff Sessions will look at it and say, do I want to be in charge of a department of justice that I no longer recognize, or do I want to let this man fire? And I, I, I do think he would, he would, he would resign before under, you know, before, Beginning an investigation he doesn't believe in, and I certainly hope he doesn't believe in this one. Yeah, well, you're in good company there. So there is no easy way to transition into this next story, so we will just begin. On Tuesday, a man drove a truck down a bike path in lower Manhattan in an alleged terrorist attack, killing eight people and injuring 12. He was shot by police and is currently in custody in the hospital. The suspect's name is Saifolo Saipov. He is a 29-year-old from Uzbekistan. A note was found in the truck declaring that Saipov was acting in the name of ISIS. We have seen truck attacks like this in Europe. Uh, Authorities here have feared that it was only a matter of time before we saw one on our own soil. And sadly, here we are. You get a sense that Trump has been rehearsing for this moment probably since the day he took office. He first called for the end of what is called the diversity visa program, which Saipov apparently used to come to the country in 2010. Trump attempted to lay this program at the feet of Democrats, calling it a, quote, Chuck Schumer beauty. This despite the fact that the program was signed into law by George H.W. Bush and Schumer was one of the so-called gang of eight who voted to end it. Trump also called for screening of immigrants that was, quote, not politically correct. And he also said that he would consider sending Saipov to Guantanamo Bay, something he later walked back. Uh, So let's start by talking about Trump's reaction to this. It was starkly different from his response to the Las Vegas shooting in which he not only did not politicize it, but called out anybody that he thought was. What are your thoughts on Trump's reaction, Chad? Well, I don't want to let other people off the hook either because – Yes, he politicized it in a way that I find um, 
disgraceful and unhelpful from a policy standpoint. But he was not the first to politicize it. In fact, when you call something an act of terrorism, that's what you're doing. It's not a byproduct of calling something an act of terrorism. It's not a side effect of calling something an act of terrorism. Calling something an act of terrorism is politicization. That is the essence of calling it terrorism. So yeah, it's it's just it, it's not just him. Well, so David, assuming that this is in fact an ISIS-inspired attack, as uh, it apparently seems to be, isn't Trump's reaction essentially just doing precisely what ISIS wants, which is to escalate things? I don't know if he's escalating things as much as it is he's he's following his usual playbook of trying to create diversions from mm. uh, I don't know some other negative news that happened uh, to him earlier in the week. <laughs> but instead of but instead of going down that road, of course, he has to you know take a take a hard line against the perpetrator. Uh, he has since withdrawn his threat to to make the perpetrator uh, go to Gitmo uh, for for holding an ultimate prosecution. And but and any any other president worth their salt would have used a moment like this to bring about the politics of unity, uh, to provide some clarity of moral purpose, and to remind Americans why we are unified together, why we're all those all those things that you don't don't. And I'm trying to be serious here, not platitudes, but you know, genuine heartfelt unifying themes in the time of adversity. I mean, very, very Churchillian, I would say. Um, he has no Churchillian bone in his entire body, so he's incapable of doing it. But I, it's it's just sad to see the, the all too predictable response that he gives to this event. And all it is, it only rises to the politics of diversion and nothing else in his mind. Well, what about this being an ISIS-inspired attack? Uh, at least that's what a lot of analysts are saying. Um, and they're particularly talking about videos, instructions in which ISIS encourages followers to rent trucks, drive them into crowds, and that they're saying, Seipel, follow this script. He left a note in the truck claiming allegiance to ISIS. Chad, what's what's your take on all that? I mean, I, I, I find this all very, very thin in terms of its analysis, right? So if the ISIS script was intricate and complex and something that people couldn't figure out on their own, then I would I would find this this connection to be important. But the the script is not intricate. The script is not particularly effective either. I mean, it is terrifying. It must have been terrifying to be there. And it's tragic what happened to, you know, to these eight people and the additional 12 people who were injured. But, you know, I read in the paper that he chose this day to maximize the loss of life. It was Halloween. Well, he failed. I mean, like, can we not see that? And can we not see that it doesn't take some mastermind ISIS caliphate to say, rent a big truck and run people over? I mean, they say a lot of things that, that he didn't do. They say, push people off of a high place. They say, poison people. They just list a bunch of ways to kill, and that's not. There's nothing particularly original about what ISIS has 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 done here. And there's nothing. I mean, and also, if if we're talking about an affiliation 
by which an individual goes and trains with people, gets hard to find financial support from from an organization. Yes, I think that affiliation is important. And then, you know, and if that's the reason, if that's the purpose of labeling something terrorism, then then I'm fine with it. But I don't think that's what it, that's what it is. I think it's it really is not just the politics of diversion, but of division. It's labeling something terrorism because a brown person does it, a brown person who worships Allah. So in uh, Muhammad, it, 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 that doesn't give us anything to go on in terms of devising public policy solutions to it. You know, it, we, well, that's part of what's so maddening about it, isn't it? I mean, yeah, the, the I, fact I, that, you know, it, and in that way, it's terribly effective. Right. I mean, think about all the time. I mean, think about all the times that just as many people are, are killed in vehicular incidents that were that were simply accidents. Right. right. We could I mean, we could do so much better by thinking of this. In, in a way that we, you know, we where the goal is to separate pedestrian from vehicular traffic, a lot more lives would be saved if we talked about this as an infrastructural danger or even a than, public health issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And we, it's an infra- infrastructural fix that we could implement rather than what we're probably going to do, which is mm. um, further degrade our international position and prestige and standing in the world um, by enacting more draconian immigration and national security policies. David, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, Trump tweeted twice that Saipov should get the death penalty. How much do Trump's comments hurt the prosecution? Uh, Doesn't this potentially allow defense lawyers to claim that their client cannot get a fair trial? That's absolutely the case. It's it's he's tainting public opinion. He's tainting a potential jury pool. He is, you know, making his voice heard in the context of sentencing rather than, uh, you know, issuing a more uh, lofty statement, which is what he should be making. So I've, I've heard prosecutors who are not involved in this case at all say that absolutely it it has a it has a dampening effect on the ability to prosecute. It's not a death knell, as it were, for a successful prosecution, but it, it just creates a more difficult climate for prosecutors to operate. And there is yet another reason why the majority of Americans wish that Trump's Twitter account had been permanently deleted by that Twitter employee. All right, everybody, that'll do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to be up on all of our goings on here at the show, head over to thinkoutsidethebeltway.com and subscribe. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, do give us a rating, won't you? That would be swell. Think Outside the Beltway is a production of Get Creative, Inc. I am Stephen Cox. They are Chad Levinson and David Gershwin. And this podcast kills fascists. Isn't it pretty to think so? And after all, tomorrow is another day. Indeed. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.